who can tell me what song this is? Let me put you in the right frame of mind. I would give you a candy bar for winning, but I don't have one, and if I did, I would have ate it. <laughs> Lent starts on Wednesday. I love Cadbury eggs, by the way. When I see them in line at the grocery store, I literally tear up. It is the Lord's honest truth it happens. I look and my eyes tear up because they are that good. So anyways, the year, 1995. 1995. Um, this song made it uh, to number five. On March 25th, it was number five on the Billboard Hot, the Billboard Hot 100 chart. You get a prize, which is kudos, not the candy bar. If you can tell me, the first person tells me what song this is. I'm going to just read the lyrics. Oh, and by the way, the lyric, the beginning lyric might be a little offensive. So I'm going to read it kind of like a prayer and a metaphor. You'll get it in a second. I mean, because that's making up for it, right? It's fixing it. God. I feel like hell tonight. The tears of rage I cannot fight. I'd be the last to help you understand. It was written by a woman. Yes! Strong Enough by Sheryl Crow. You know Sheryl Crow fans? Who remembers the 90s and loved them? Yeah. Yeah. Julie's not allowed to play. Here's the rest of the song. Are you strong enough to be my man? That's why I had to tell you it was a woman, because that would be weird for me. It's just not my thing, personally. Nothing's true and nothing's right. So let me be alone tonight. Because you can't change the way I am. Are you strong enough to be my man? Lie to me. I promise I'll believe. Lie to me. But please don't leave. I have a face I cannot show. I make the rules up as I go. Just try to love me if you can. Are you strong enough to be my man? When I've shown you that I just don't care, when I'm throwing punches in the air, when I'm broken down and I can't stand, would you be man enough to be my man? Lie to me. I promise I'll believe. Lie to me. But please don't leave. Right? You guys know the song? Does anybody know it? If you raise your hand if you know it. Okay, those of you without your hands raised, you suck. I'm just kidding. That's horrible. <laughs> What'd your pastor say today? Told us we sucked. In the name of Jesus, of course. I'm just kidding. The song, if if you don't know it, um, you just you just heard basically the lyrics. It's it it really is when you listen to it. It's kind of a happier tune though. It's acoustic and kind of up, and it's got a nice flow to it. Um, it's I mean it, it tends to be an enjoyable song to listen to. Um, and yet when you listen to the words, it's kind of tragic and filled with pain, isn't it? So it's just a song, right? But apparently because it made it to number five. Um, you know, in 1995, it really resonated with a lot of people. 
My question is, how true is it, though? That lyric lied to me. I promise I'll believe. I think it's so powerful. And so we are in, uh, I don't know, part six, I guess, of our series, Experiencing God, Knowing, and Doing the Will of God, where we are teaching on the the scripture memory verses from uh, the Experiencing God course so that everybody can get the flavor for them. And so my subtitle today is Lie to Me. I promise I'll believe. How true are these lyrics? Uh, has anybody heard of a woman named Pamela uh, Pamela Meyer? Anybody? It's okay if you haven't. I hadn't really heard of her until very recently. Uh, she holds an, a Master of Business Administration from Harvard University and a Master's in Public Policy from Claremont Graduate School. And she's CEO of a, a social networking company called Simpatico Networks. She worked with a team of researchers for several years um, and collected and reviewed most of the research that has ever been done and published on deception. Um, they gathered this information from such fields as uh, law enforcement, military, uh, psychology, and espionage, spy, spycraft. Uh, she also went on to become an expert um, in, in detecting deception herself, receiving advanced uh, training in deception, detection, and multiple courses of advanced, advanced interrogation training and micro-expression analysis, statement analysis, uh, behavior and body language interpretation, and emotion recognition. Uh, all of her research came together in a book that she wrote that was a bestseller, and you can still buy it today, called Lie Spotting. Lie Spotting. Uh, as she was telling her story and giving a talk, you could see it on, uh, there's a, um, a website called TED Talks, um, Ideas Worth Spreading. There's some, a wonder, and some incredible ideas on this site. She was giving a, a short lecture on TED Talks, and she said after she wrote the book, and it got out there, and it was a bestseller, she, could not, she couldn't get a date to hang out with any friends at Starbucks anymore. They would answer her by email so that they wouldn't have to sit in front of her. She started her talk by looking out in the crowd saying, hey, that person sitting to the right side of you, that person's a liar. And the person on the left, that person's a liar too. And the person sitting in your seat is a liar. She got my attention. Of course, there was nobody sitting around me. I was the only liar in the room. She said this. This is from her research. Listen to this. On a given day, uh, the studies that they did and collected show that you will be lied to anywhere from 10 to 200 times. Granted, most of those are white lies, right? White lies meaning, you know, they're not, they don't have malicious intent. You know, it's know the person telling you you don't look fat in that dress or yeah Steve you can go ahead and wear that shirt when it's obviously it looks like I've stuffed one too many potatoes in the sack you know it's like come on white lies you know so most of them granted a lot of them will be that but keep listening one study showed that when strangers meet they lie to each other at least three times within the first 10 minutes now, when we, first, when, when we first hear this data, she goes on to say, we recoil. 
We can't believe how prevalent lying is. We're essentially against lying. But if you look more closely, the plot thickens, she says. We're, we are more likely to lie to strangers than to lie to coworkers. Extroverts lie more than introverts. Men lie eight times more about themselves than they do about other people. Women lie more to protect other people, generally speaking. And if, uh, if you're an average married couple, you're going to lie to your spouse in one out of every ten interactions. That sounds bad, huh? Well, if you're not married, if you're single and dating, that statistic changes from one in every ten interactions to one in every three according to her research. My question is, and, and I think that's kind of true, right? It was funny watching Chris and, and Tiffany as they were dating and they were courting, right? And they, they became engaged because Tiffany was living with me. And so they would come, Chris would come over and they would lay together on the couch and watch this TV. And I don't know whether they're still doing that or not. And I said, you know, Tiffany said something to me one day. I mean, she lived with us for a while. So we got very comfortable in our interactions. She said something one day. I forget what it was. Oh, Julie and I were like reclining on the couch. And Julie like leaned over on me. And she was like getting my space. You know what I mean? And I was watching this show. And I said, seriously, can you please not lean on me? Don't lay on me right now. Oh, don't act like you don't do it, married people. Sometimes you just ain't. I mean, seriously, back in the day, like when I was on the honeymoon, Kiss in the morning before you brush your teeth? Absolutely! Now it's like, nah. 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 So I was like, told Tiffany, I was like, whatever, my relationship's better than yours. She's like, oh! That was an evil monster. And I said, well, see, Julie and I are so comfortable in our love that we can tell each other the truth. You guys lay on the couch. I don't care what you say. One of you is hurting. One of you is uncomfortable, and you know it, and you're laying there uncomfortable just to make the other person happy. Eventually, you love each other so much that you're like, seriously, move. I love you that much. Get off me. Right? So that's, I'm sorry, I pick on these guys. It's funny, I saw, Chris, you actually edited out the remark I made about you in the message like three weeks ago. <laughs> Online on the podcast. Yeah, nice. My question is, what does this world, what does this everyday world of deception tell us about ourselves and about our act, and about our ability to know and do the will of God? Open your Bibles to John chapter 5, and we're going to look at verse 19. This is the scripture memory verse this week. And I would have loved to take the have taken the time to um Read about 47 verses so that you can get the full flavor and context of this, but the bacon explosion calls. I know, huh? So we're going to get right to the meat of what's going on here. <laughs> what verse did I say we're doing? 19. All right. Here's the setting. Jesus had just healed a man who had been crippled 
for about 38 years. He did it on a Saturday. Seems like a good day to be healed. And he told this guy to get up, take up his mat, and walk. And so the guy does it. And he gets immediately in trouble with the religious leaders, the experts in religion, because he's he's doing work on the Sabbath, which according to these extremely um, strict um, and, frankly, very legalistic uh, Jewish people that Jesus was interacting with here, that was a major, major no-no. You know, you're breaking the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. And so these, these people find out that it was Jesus who healed this guy. So Jesus, too, is breaking the Sabbath by doing work on it, healing a guy. And Jesus is like, hey, you know, I'm just doing what I see the Father doing. He's working today, and so am I. Then they, then, then, then they people got even madder at Jesus because... Um, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath according to their view, but he had just called God his father, making himself equal with God. Now they were so angry they wanted to kill him. That sets us up for where we are in verse 19. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Read it one more time. Your version might, your translation, obviously the original is in Greek, your translation might say something like this. Very truly, or truly, truly, or amen, amen, I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth. The Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand this text and help me help me somehow use me. However you want. Ears that hear what you're saying. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father do. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Think about it. Jesus had just healed a man who had been crippled for 38 years. I mean, how? It's unbelievable. It's an unbelievable miracle. 38 years this guy was crippled and he was laying by this pool. The text even tells us, or, or it hints at the fact, that this guy is probably crippled himself in some manner. Because it seems to be this guy was uh, sinning. He was doing something outside of the plan of God that landed him in that spot and kept him there. 30-something years, Jesus had just healed this man. Why in the world is Jesus forced to say this? I'm telling you the truth. 
I can't do anything by myself. I'm only doing what I see the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, I'm doing that. Don't you see? Imagine standing in front of this, this crowd and these people are angry over him breaking their interpretation of these certain rules. And Jesus is looking going, why don't you understand? What I'm doing is from God. How else could this stuff be happening? How else? Why couldn't these people that day see what God was doing? I mean, it was right in front of their face, wasn't it? We think about it. A man who'd been crippled 38 years? How does that happen? What God was doing was right in front of their face. But they couldn't see it. They couldn't recognize it. It's weird. I mean, to you and I, the readers, it's blatantly obvious, isn't it? I mean, we get to read it from a perspective. We get to read it from this almost omnipotent perspective. We kind of look down on it, and it's so blatantly obvious from the text that God is doing something. And here are these people in the, in the text who clearly don't get it. And we would look at him and go, why? I mean, what's your problem? Not only did this great miracle just happen, but Jesus goes on in his conversation with them uh, in the next few verses. And he points out that God had been speaking to them continuously, constantly, all over the place to reveal what he was doing. And they still weren't getting it. God spoke to them through a prophet, John the Baptist. John the Baptist came and the people were excited about John for a while. And they weren't so excited about him a little later. John testified about Jesus. God was speaking through John. God, God was speaking himself about Jesus through these miracles. I mean, how else would they be happening? Jesus was pointing it out. Do I have this power in myself? How else would this be happening if I weren't from God? If God wasn't for me? These circumstances, these miraculous circumstances, should have got them to go, whoa, wait, something's going on. But they didn't. Then God spoke to these people through the Bible, through the scriptures. The words of the Torah, the writings of the prophets, foretold about Jesus. They all pointed to Jesus. These people knew these scriptures. Many of them who were standing there that day knew these scriptures incredibly well. They knew these. And Jesus stood there, and I, it's almost, at one point he looks at them. Maybe a little mystified, I don't get it. You study these scriptures because you think in them. You have eternal life, but they point to me. I'm right here, but you won't know. God was speaking constantly through the Bible, through these miraculous circumstances, through his people. All of these streams of God's voice were converging in this moment 
And yet these people just didn't hear. They didn't see. They didn't. They were not able to know and do the will of God at that moment. Why? I'm going to be honest with you. It's very easy for me to place those people very quickly, just kind of read over that and place those people into a category. Like they, maybe they're just kind of moral monsters. They're people that are just against God no matter what, you know. They're, they're inherently flawed people. So I put them over there in a category and say, those people, you know, there's just something wrong with it. It's harder for me to look at them and, and admit the fact that they're part of the human family. The same human family that I'm a part of. And then realize that that's the same family to which I myself bear a very strong family resemblance. So as I was reading and wrestling with this text this week, I asked why. Why couldn't they hear? Why couldn't they see what God was doing right in front of their faces? Why couldn't they know and do the will of God? And then I came to this conclusion that was very tough to swallow. They were blind and deaf to what God was doing because they wanted to. They were blind and deaf to what God was doing because they wanted to. You don't have to turn there at the moment. Let me just read what Jesus says in verses 41 and down. Same conversation, same context. He says, I don't accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you don't have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you don't accept me. But if someone else comes to you in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but you don't seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do you hear what's at the heart of this? They're blind and deaf because they want to be. Let's go back to Meyer for a second and think about lying. In her lecture on, on Ted, she brought up two very, very important ideas about lying. The first one is this. Lying is a cooperative act. Lying takes at least two. See, because if I told you today, after worship, in the parking lot, I have, I have, I went out this past week and I caught 12 ring-tailed lemurs and five baboons. And after service, everybody gets a free baboon. Right? You see, that, that's a lie, right? But it doesn't have any power unless right now you're sitting there going, Yeah, yes! I've been wanting a monkey for so long! Yes! You choose, if, when you choose to believe the lie, now all of a sudden it has power. Do you get what, I'm, do you get what she's saying? Lying 
is a cooperative act. Have, how many of you guys have ever heard of a guy named Henry Oberlander? He is the greatest con man you've never heard of. It's even hard to find stuff for this guy on Google when you search him. It's, this guy was such an effective con man that the British authorities said that he and what he was doing could have undermined the entire banking system of the Western world. You've seen the movie Catch Me If You Can? About Frank William Abagnale. You haven't seen it? Such a great movie. I wouldn't recommend that from the pulpit, though. But it's good, though. This guy is far, far exceeds Frank William Abagnale in his ability as a, as a con man. In an interview, he said this. He said, I only have one rule. Everyone is willing to give you something. Hang with me. He said, they're ready. They're ready to give you something for whatever it is that they're hungry for. Everyone. That was his rule as a convict. Everyone is willing to give him what he wants. He can only somehow offer them whatever it is they're hungry for. So Meyer goes on and says, that's the crux of it, isn't it? If you don't want to be deceived, if you don't want to be deceived, you have to know what it is that you are hungry for. You have to know what you're hungry for. We all kind of hate it, hate to admit it, but the, isn't it true that many of us, we wish we were better husbands, better wives. We wish we were smarter or more powerful, taller or better looking or richer. The list goes on and on and on. Listen to what she says. I think this is powerful. She says, lying, lying is an attempt to bridge the gap. An attempt to bridge the gap. To connect our wishes and our fantasies about who we wish we were. How we wish we could be. With the reality of what we're really like. That lying is our default mechanism to bridge the gap between what we're hungry for and where we're really at. Lying is a cooperative act. So it means in a lot of cases, we believe lies because we want to. Not all of the time. Much of the time, we believe because we want to. And the second thing, that she found was very important about lies was that we fundamentally are against lying. We're fundamentally against lying, but we're covertly for it. We're covertly, you know what that means? Covertly, under the surface, like a double agent spy. We're covertly for lying. She says, our society throughout the centuries has sanctioned ways for lying. We recognize that it's out there. 
and we're okay with it. She said lying is as old as breathing. It's part of our culture. It's an ingrained part of our culture and an ingrained part of our history. She said, think about the great works of literature of the past. Think about Dante or Shakespeare. Think about the Bible. Think about the newspapers around the world every day. Let's go back to these people standing in front of Jesus that day who could not hear, could not see, could not know the will of God to do it. Why? Why were they deceived? Because they wanted to be. They wanted to be deceived because they had satisfied their desires. They had satisfied their individual hunger for meaning and for value and for purpose in life. They had satisfied that hunger with the lies that they told one another and believed from one another. That's how they satisfied that hunger. That's how they did it. And when the truth came, the truth was a threat to their entire self-fabricated identities. The truth came, it rocked them to their core. It rocked them to their core. They were Then they chose. They had a decision to make. Embrace the truth or continue in deception. They chose to be blind and deaf. They were blind and deaf to what God was doing because they wanted to be. Because they wanted to be. What about us? Do we want to be deceived? If we were being honest, are, do we secretly sing the lyrics of Cheryl Crow to this world? Lie to me. Lie to me. I promise I'll believe. Lie to me. But please don't leave. Please don't leave me here alone. For what it's worth, you have been the source of the meaning of my life, the value of my life, the purpose of my life, since I can remember. I just don't want to be alone. So lie to me. I promise I'll believe. To see God at work. To know and do the will of God. To hear from hear the voice of God. We must truly want to. We must want to more than we want to continue in the deception that we live in. We must want to. More than we want to maintain our own deception. What are we supposed to do with this here today, Steve? If you're taking notes, I would tell you to write these three down, three things down. Maybe this is a place to start. Do you, if, do you want to do, do you want to know and do the will of God? Do you want to see it where God is at work? Do you want to hear from him? Maybe a good place to start would be prayer, saying I want to do. But then from there, I would encourage you to, dis to discover what you're hungry for. Besides the bacon explosion. 
What hungers drive you through your weekly schedule? What hungers drive you into the relationships you find yourself in? What hungers are driving you? What are those things? Discover what they are. Pray prayerfully. Sit down with a journal. Buy yourself a Starbucks coffee and sit there for an afternoon. Give yourself an hour. Discover what's, what, what hungers drive you. Do you want to feel important? Do you want to feel pretty? Do you want to feel manly? Do you want to feel smart? Do you want to feel successful? There could be any number of things. Where do you get the value? Your sense of value from? Your sense of purpose? Your sense of worth and meaning? That would be the second thing. Identify how you're currently satisfying the hunger. Hungers that drive your life. And the third would be a challenge. I would challenge you to seek, choose to seek the satisfaction that comes from God alone. Choose above all else to seek the satisfaction that comes from God alone. Remember what Jesus said, how can, to those people that day, how can you believe when you accept glory from one another, but you don't seek after the glory that comes from the one and only God? I think if we want, if we truly want to see God at work, and we truly want to hear from God, and we truly want to know and do the will of God, if we truly want that, we will. I'm not saying that there are no silent times, but across our lifetime, we will hear from God. We will see God at work. We will know and do the will of God if we want to. The question is, do we really want to? Do I really want to?